Welcome to the Business of Family. I'm your host, Mike Boyd, and this is my look into the world of multi-generational wealth creation, family enterprise, stewardship, family office investing, and the curation of a legacy. On the podcast, I interview members of some of the world's most interesting families to hear how they pass knowledge, resources, values, and wealth to the next generation. I hope you will enjoy sharing this learning journey with me and would greatly appreciate any feedback or referrals you have to offer. To sign up to my weekly Business of Family newsletter, go to businessoffamily.net forward slash newsletter. Joe Poland is the owner of Cardinal Senior Management, an operator of assisted living communities in the United States. Joe started the company with his business partner in 2015, and they hope to continue their growth in the coming decade with a focus on affordability and decentralized leadership. Joe lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan with his wife and four-year-old son and brings to us a really interesting and different perspective today than we usually hear when we're talking about generational families. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Joe, thanks so much for being here with us on the show this week. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Mike. Now, you're uh, a little bit different to some of the guests that we've had on the show before, and that's very, very intentional. I'm not going to tell your story for you. Will you give us a little bit of a background as to uh, your business in particular and and how you've come to be in the industry that you're in today? Yeah. So I'm the uh, co-founder of a company called Cardinal Senior Management. We operate assisted living buildings in the state of Pennsylvania, in the United States, and in Michigan. And we specialize in affordable uh, assisted living. So you'll come into our buildings and the the rates will be middle to low in the market. And you know we've had a lot of success there and, and find that that's where we enjoy playing. And how long ago did you get into this space? What attracted it to you? You know, As an entrepreneur, you obviously saw a business opportunity here. How did this get on your radar in the first place? Yeah, so I, I got my career started in student housing. So I was doing student housing right out of right before the Great Financial Recession and kind of through the Great Financial Recession. Uh, met up with a couple individuals who had some cash, and we went out and started buying distressed student housing and distressed uh, self storage. So I was running self storage uh, communities and really had kind of a moment of crisis where I was like, is this what I was put on the planet to do? You know, rent garages. And, you know, the business strategy was pretty simple. Give away as much free rent as you possibly could to get people to sign up on auto debit and then push your rent increases in February. And where we live, February's, you know, miserable and snowy and no one would ever move their stuff out. And I was making, you know, good money at the time, more money than I had ever made. And just kind of at a moment, like, this is, is this really what I'm supposed to do with my life? And uh, I'd always been pretty close to both my grandfathers and uh, had looked up to both of them. And, you know, I knew a couple people in uh, assisted living and, and taking care of the elderly, and they were making good money. They had employees, which is something that, you know, I really aspired to is to be a leader, business leader in my community. And, so I went on a journey to try to figure out how to get into assisted living. And I met up with my business partner, Chuck. Chuck and I are 50-50 owners of Cardinal. And we got started in 2015 with two buildings in, in York, Pennsylvania. 
and did really well with those two buildings. Grew that portfolio to seven buildings, uh, about 700 beds of assisted living in Pennsylvania. And then uh, went to our backyard and picked up some more buildings in our backyard. And we still think of ourselves kind of in the scrappy entrepreneurial journey, but we are trying to figure out what Cardinal, what we call Cardinal 3.0 looks like. Cardinal 1.0 is when Chuck and I and a couple Excel spreadsheets were doing our best to manage assisted living buildings. Cardinal 2.0 is when we got serious and hired in a, you know, a really talented CFO and, and brought in some, some higher level manager talents and they put systems in place for us to grow. And then Cardinal 3.0 is you know, how do we take the platform we built and really try to grow that into you know something we're we're proud of that serves seniors in the way that that we believe seniors deserve to be served? That's fantastic, and I've got a couple of follow up questions because, of course, as a foreigner, I don't have a complete grasp of the space as it operates in the U.S. But firstly, I guess back to the entrepreneurial journey, there must be a big difference between sort of being a real estate guy and 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 operating storage sheds and then coming into being an operational guy and really dealing with people probably at, at quite emotional stages and, and challenging stages of their life at times. How do you sort of build a team but also pivot a business to deal with providing care rather than providing storage? Like to me, that just seems like quite a quite a journey that you've had to make in in learning that. Was it difficult or did it just sort of happen naturally? I mean, that definitely was its challenges, but it was what I wanted to do. I always looked up to the business owners in my community when I was growing up. I always knew that's that's what I wanted to do. Uh, when I was in college, I was in the entrepreneurship program and I owned a handful of single family homes I would rent out. And I thought of myself as an entrepreneur and I met a pretty successful entrepreneur. And I said, you know, I'm an entrepreneur too. And he's like, well, how many employees do you have? It's like, oh, well, there's me and I hire contractors and you know, lawyer makes some fees off of me. And he's like, look, kid, unless someone's livelihood and their family's livelihood depends on what you're doing, you're not an entrepreneur. And I really wrestled with that. I was so angry. And it took me a while until I kind of realized in the way that I view entrepreneurship, that's true, that you have a responsibility to those who work for you. You know, they follow you and they follow the vision of what you're putting together. And that puts food on their tables and allows their kids to go to school. And, you know, it's bigger than yourself. And I wanted that responsibility. I think it's really, really cool. And it's something I, I don't take for granted. So I was looking for any opportunity to really become an entrepreneur the way I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And right now, Cardinal has about 600 employees across all of our buildings. Uh, we have, we create opportunities at the entry level job. So someone just finishing high school. Uh, can come work for us at Cardinal. And we have you know, people making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in some of our manager and leadership positions. So you know, we you know, provide lots of different opportunities to different folk. Majority of our workforce is uh, women. And you know, I take, it's important not only to provide a financial opportunities for people, but you know, really try to create an environment where people feel respected and they feel that their opinions matter and that they can make a difference. And that's what we've been able to accomplish at Cardinal. And I get to go to work every day. And you know, I do feel really proud of myself and our team of what we built. And, and I feel like we're just getting going. So it's an exciting time to be at Cardinal, especially coming out of, out of COVID. 
No, it's fantastic. And I appreciate you sort of articulating how that vision came together and the value system for you and wanting to be a great entrepreneurial leader. It's certainly something I've admired in you watching from afar, just seeing how you interact on on Twitter and other places where we originally connected, you know, the examples from what you're doing with your team and how you interact with them and how you supported your team through COVID in a very difficult environment, you know, I think is is really admirable. So hats off to you. I think you've grown into the leader that you want to be and you're also, you know, setting examples for other leaders out there. Thanks for the compliment. It really does mean a lot. So, Joe, I'm curious now, just from a regulatory perspective, again, you know, apologies if I'm asking simple questions, but from afar, I'm curious, do you need to be licensed or or in some way qualified to start an assisted living or senior living facility in the States, or is it more a a private enterprise and, and there's a fair bit of flexibility in terms of how you deliver a service like that? So all of our buildings are licensed. We're licensed through the individual state. We aren't licensed through the federal government. There's two, they seem very similar uh, businesses in the United States that take care of the elderly. There are nursing homes, also called skilled nursing facilities. You'll see, you'll see an acronym called SNF, S-N-F, for skilled nursing facility. Uh, those are regulated by the federal government and by the state government. The payers, majority payers for those facilities are the federal government through the Medicare or Medicaid program or uh, some sort of insurance. The buildings I operate are assisted living facilities. You also see those called retirement communities. Uh, You'll see them called ALFs, assisted living facilities or ALFs. And those are uh, very similar to mine, which are private pay. So a family or an individual would just pay me on the first of the month and that payment would be for their housing. So that would cover their room, their board, their food, activities. And then they'd also be paying for care. So we bundle our cares. They're called levels of care. It's pretty common in our industry. So really, they pay one amount each month, and it covers almost every expense that that they would have. Uh, so those are kind of the, the two food groups that we're in. The big challenge in our industry right now is that uh, more and more seniors don't have the financial resources uh, to move into our facilities. And you really, there's only one payer around who's got the resources to really take care of these individuals, and that's the U.S. federal government. And there's a lot of debate amongst people who hold my position of how much federal involvement we really want, because with their dollars come strings and regulations attached. And you know, everyone has different opinions. My opinion is, you know, in assisted living, we exist, our industry exists in service to seniors and the seniors who need our services are those who don't have the financial resources. Uh, You're seeing a lot of baby boomers who haven't saved for retirement. Instead of arguing about right or wrong, I think we need to just look at the problem and look at the solution. And I don't see a solution to the problems that our country's facing that doesn't involve the federal government needing to be involved in assisted living. And if there's any assisted living operators out there listening to this podcast, I'm sure I angered a whole lot of them, but that's that's where I see the future of our industry. No, I appreciate you sharing that and, and the distinction as well. I'm curious, you know, how you interact with families who, as you say, there's a lot of seniors that aren't prepared uh, financially to enter assisted living facilities, what alternatives are there 
for families? I, I, do you do you have people that you have to turn away, or is it very obvious that they they can't afford to be there? You know, how do you handle those difficult conversations if they do occur? So, in the state of Michigan, Michigan sets aside some Medicaid dollars. So, Medicaid's the insurance provider for the poor in Michigan or in the United States. So, if someone runs out of funds, what we would do is move them in with a roommate. We would bring Medicaid in. They would pay us a lower rate than what the private pay rate is. But through getting roommate, uh, we could create an environment where the person uh, doesn't have to leave their home uh, with us. They still have the same caregivers, still have the same friends in the building. And we consider that a huge win. Uh, In the state of Pennsylvania, I'm on the board for the Healthcare Association, and we are working to try to find a similar program or create a similar program in that state, which I consider a, a big win. For us, unfortunately, our country gets a, or the United States gets a reputation for not caring for our elderly, the way a lot of other countries uh, care for the elderly. And in my experience, that certainly holds true. Uh, you know, the majority of people who pass away in our building are comforted only by our staff when they pass. Uh, we take that extremely seriously. We don't create any company policies of what happens when someone's passing. Our staff feel like they've been put on this planet to care for the elderly, and we give them all the freedoms and uh, autonomy to do what they feel right in each building. Each person kind of handles that in a different way. And I'm just continually impressed at how, you know, people come move into our building who don't really have access. A lot of them don't have family, and uh, our staff really becomes their their family. Uh, we certainly do work with families, and there's a lot of great stories of that. But I'm really, really uh, impressed with the way our team, you know, loves and cares and holds the hand of of their loved one or their residents while they're dying. It's incredibly sad, and and unfortunately happens uh, too much in in not just the United States but different parts of the world. And it's it's part of the reason I wanted to invite you on, Joe, and and share these stories because. The business of family often explores generational wealth or multi-generational business families, which really means we're often looking to the future. We're talking about the next generation, the rising generation quite often. But I think sometimes, as you've just likely demonstrated, we're forgetful of investing the same energy in our seniors uh, or our elders in the family, um, and particularly those that don't come from substantial wealth. Um, but sometimes even those that do, if if we have fragmented family relationships and someone's senior and they lose a spouse, then you know they may not have the care and support or children in the same city or state that can support them in their later years. And I'm just you know, curious for your perspective, you must see this quite often, of what people really need in their later years and, and what becomes most important to them. Yeah. It, so whenever I go to Pennsylvania, uh, which is it's about a two and a half hour flight from from where I live. Uh, I always sleep in the buildings. Uh, it gives me an ability to interact with our staff on all three shifts and get a feel for you know the reality that our residents live in. I find it uh, personally helpful and centering to kind of sleep in the rooms that our our residents live in, and you know really kind of think through you know how I want my life to go and. And ultimately answer the question, am I proud of the service that we're providing in the building? Because, you know, I'm eating the meals and, and sitting there. And uh, I've kind of seen a lot of that on 
you know, what happens if you don't have a family who, who cares for you? And we're seeing that rise more and more, especially with more and more people going through divorce. So you're seeing more people who you know, really don't have a spouse or extreme, estranged children. In the United States, it's pretty common for the children to move away, uh, especially in the areas that we're in, which is in the Midwest, uh, where a lot of in the 80s and 90s, a lot of kind of brain drain happened. A lot of people left those communities to go um, to kind of coastal communities. So, you know, we're, we're interacting with a lot of people, uh, you know, who are alone. And I think we get paid for and we measure the care we provide. And we do that in minutes. So we have different metrics for that. And what you'll see a lot is we track the uh, call bells. So when someone needs something, they, they press a button and that alerts our staff. And a lot of you can track what it was for, how often they hit it, and it will never show up there because the the staff member doesn't really know how to code it. But majority of those call bells are are loneliness uh, that our residents are are facing, and, and we're we're in a congregate setting, so you have lots of elderly people living together, and it, it's impossible for me or any of us to effectively staff to end loneliness. Uh, it's a really, really challenging thing to do. So we feel the secret sauce of our business is uh, the activities department. And they're called the activities coordinators. But really what they are is kind of volunteer coordinators and uh, resident coordinators try to get residents to to interact with each other. And through supporting each other, that that really helps our residents a lot. And when you get, or what I realized when you get to the end of your life, what you really want is, you know, a warm meal in a an environment that you feel safe and and be surrounded by people that that respect you and and care for you and and frankly place for you to put your love into other people. Thank you for sharing. I'm curious as a follow up to that to ask about the residents in your facilities who do come from well supported families who perhaps visit or or pay for their care there. How do you think that can be emphasized or encouraged further, you know, potentially when families do live, you know, some distance away, do you try and encourage, you know, more frequent visits? Is it something that, that even shows up on your radar as an operator or what's the, the resident to family interaction type and can it be done better across the industry? My experience, I don't have like the data to back it up, but just being in the buildings, if you want your family interacting with you in the United States, I would recommend having daughters or making sure that you're close with your daughter-in-laws. You know, the majority of all the decisions are made by the oldest daughter and all the visits are usually uh, daughters. So if you're worried about this, I would recommend uh, either having daughters, improving your relationship with your daughters or... Uh, interacting with your daughter-in-laws. That's just kind of ultimately what I've seen. Of course, there's exceptions to that. <laughs> you know, it's, you often do see a little bit of that, uh, the cats in the cradle song, you know, if you didn't have time for your son while you were, while he was growing up, you know, he's not going to have time for you when, when you're getting older. So yeah, I would, th- those are kind of some insights that someone might not expect to hear. Yeah, no, incredibly valuable. I'm sure there's some people taking some notes there too. And, you know, it it reminds me, we were having a quick chat before we started recording about some of the different families I've interviewed from different cultures around the world. And of course, some cultures 
particularly in business families, preference a, a male children or the eldest male in terms of lineage and who's going to inherit and who's going to run the business and what have you. And in some cultures, daughters are are overlooked or or it's more focused on who they marry and and um, you know it, it's nice to hear your your insight there to offer a completely different take on <laughs> on uh, children and and sons and daughters. I think that's a great insight. I do like to remind all of my friends who have daughters of just you know like you might not be looking at the whole picture when uh, that balloon pops and it's a it's a pink balloon. This is more than just uh, what someone will be like when they're a teenager. What happens when they're 70 and you're 95? Yeah, that's amazing. Joe, if we come back to sort of some of the families in the audience that listen to this, you know, they're perhaps multi-generational already. There's businesses, there's assets involved. Maybe they're they're dialed into family governance, which is why they're listening to this and they're planning for the, the next generation. They're having family meetings. They're doing all the right things. How should this topic of aging elders, senior living, assist, assisted living, how should this get on the agenda for a family meeting or a family discussion? What should families be doing if they are really intentional and proactive to ensure that the later stages of life of members of their family is taken care of to a really high standard? Yeah, so most people who do some basic planning have it written down and understand what happens when they are in a vegetative state. There's very clear guidelines on how things move. But what I've never seen and what's going to happen to one in three Americans and will most likely happen to every single family that's on this planet is that someone will get dementia. Dementia is incredibly debilitating. It's an utterly horrible, horrible disease. There's lots of uh, different opinions on how Alzheimer's and dementia happen. Kind of the research I've looked at kind of tracks a lot with uh, Western diets. It's kind of a form of diabetes that has, you know, really affects the brain. If you've ever known anyone with dementia, it's not like it happens overnight. It's not like you were, you didn't have dementia and you woke up in the morning you, and you have it. It's, it's a kind of a degenerative uh, disease. Lots of terrible decisions uh, are made by people with dementia um, who might see some stuff slipping. I would really encourage every family and every kind of leader of a family to to really have a decision of like, when I start slipping, you know, what happens? What happens when I'm trying to make decisions and I'm mentally really not in the best case to be making decisions. And and dementia creates a lot of different feelings and emotions. Um, Anger is one of those that I've seen. It's really, really tough, especially for people who've been accustomed to a certain quality of life, who've oftentimes been rewarded handsomely their entire life for their mental aptitude. And to watch that deteriorate and go away is really sad. So I would I'd probably encourage uh, really anyone who's thinking about family planning to really take a take a real look at dementia and, and how each of us are setting ourselves up to be successful in the face of something that's going to affect really every family on you know that uh, that's really listening to this. Joe, is there anything that families can do to best prepare for someone 
getting dementia or is it more around, you know, preparing, as you say, decision-making control? Because I imagine that that's really difficult to find the line as to when when decision-making is no longer applicable. If it's a slow de- degenerative disease, the person with the disease likely thinks that they still have capacity and a family member or a, or a son or a daughter watching from afar says, actually, I don't think you're a sharp or you're starting to drift. Where do you draw that line and say, actually, I'm stepping in now, I'm using this power of attorney or whatever the, the document might be to act on your behalf? That's got to be a, a, a difficult conversation and a difficult time to pick. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard. And, and frankly, Mike, I don't have a I don't have a clear answer. I can tell you in my experience working with people with dementia, it is so much easier and you're making your life so much easier on your loved ones and the people that care about and your spouse. If you're the one who notices it and you're the one who takes action yourself. So people really move into assisted living for two reasons. One, they decide it's the right thing for them. And then there's people who there is no other choice in the decisions being made for them. It is very obvious which people have a more successful experience in our buildings. People who make the decision on their own, you're relieving a huge burden from your loved ones and and the people around you uh, if you're able to make that decision. And I'm not saying that assisted living or my buildings are are the right setting. It might be, you know, for a, a wealthy individual to hire full-time care at the house. It is a lot, a lot of work being a caregiver for your spouse. So if you're not wanting to do it for your kids, I would think about doing it for your spouse. A lot of times what we've seen is uh, one member of the of the couple will get dementia, be pretty heavy care. The other member, the other couple or the, the spouse will become the full-time caregiver. And the spouse actually will pass before the person needing all the care, just because of how challenging it is to be a full-time caregiver, especially when you're not a professional, especially when you're older as well. and You have physical abilities that, that really don't match up with the needs of the job. And I, I think these insights are just so incredibly valuable and difficult conversations to to listen to and to have, but they're so important. So I appreciate you sort of shedding some light and bringing these topics to the surface for us. I'm curious now to, to pivot to your personal life, if you don't mind me asking. Your perspective on generational wealth, was it, you know, did you come from a family uh, that you consider had a generational plan around business or, or any other form of capital? Do you intend for it yourself? What's the Joe story? Yeah, so I came from a middle-class family. Mom was a homemaker, dad, uh, computer programmer, uh, still works at, at IBM. We carried a tremendous amount of personal debt while I was growing up. We had a nice house, couldn't afford the furniture in it. Uh, had a, but a great childhood. Mom loved, loved on us, was always there when we came home from school. Dad made every soccer practice. Uh, you know, really thankful for the, for the life I had growing up. There was no, there was a 401k that, uh, that my dad put money into and didn't own any real estate. No one in my family really owned any real estate. And we never talked about generational anything. I actually think talking to a lot of other entrepreneurs, especially through the, the YPO program, who might be in multi-generational situations, 
you know, really my parents had no expectations for, for me and my siblings, you know, it really allowed us to swing free and do what we wanted. This idea of, oh, my parents, you know, let me do whatever I wanted for a career is kind of foreign to me. It it was so obvious that that was what was going to happen. I'm an assisted living operator. My brother's a biologist living in Alaska and my sister is a recycles and clothing to make designer clothing in Detroit. So she's an entrepreneur and my brother probably is the most entrepreneurial of all of us uh, living in Alaska and in Africa for a little bit and China and kind of going uh, wherever his heart tells him he needs to go. So, you know, they kind of raised entrepreneurial children uh, while none of them were entrepreneurial at all. And really, we didn't I'm really not sure how that came about. And I met my wife 10 years ago, and she's from uh, Central America. She's from uh, Nicaragua. And when we met, we were like, she's like, I don't want to have kids. And I was like, I don't, I don't really want to have kids either. So this whole generational planning was going to be super easy. We were just going to make money, spend it all and uh, say goodbye. But uh, actually during COVID, our neighbors uh, were fostering a young boy and they had adopted his full biological brother uh, 11 years ago. And they were in a situation where they couldn't adopt uh, Jackson and kind of uh, came to us and said, you know, look, the biological mom, us, the brother, they all wanted uh, the two boys to grow up knowing each other and asked if we wanted to be parents. And my wife and I changed our tune on that spot. I mean, it was amazing how such a large decision was made so quickly. It was the right thing to do. It was what we wanted to do. Uh, we fell in love with him the moment we saw him. And the adoption actually was finalized during COVID. So most people, when they have a child, you get like, six months heads up before the kid shows up. I mean, he, he like during COVID moved in and like then I was working from home. My wife was working from home. We had no babysitters, no nannies, no family help. You know, it was, it was live bullets <laughs> while, while during COVID. And uh, it really turned out to be a, a bonding experience for all of us. And I've talked to a lot of YPOers about this, that, you know, my son's going to be growing up not only in a very different environment than his biological brother lives down the street. He's also growing up in a very different environment than my wife grew up in, very different environment than, than I grew up in. I mean, the opportunities available to him, you know, is, is going to be significantly different than, than what I, uh, even I had or my wife had. Talk to a lot of entrepreneurial there are a lot of YPRs in the same situation and, you know, just kind of ask the question, can you really gift your child struggle? Which, I mean, it's kind of comical, but of course not. And those struggles kind of produced a lot of personality traits in myself that I'm really proud of. So I'm just as lost as every other parent um, trying to figure this whole thing out. I mean, I got him to bed tonight. So I count that as a win. And, uh, Kind of made the promise to him that I was like, look, I'm not going to expect you to be the perfect kid. Hope you don't expect me to be the perfect dad. You know, I'm going to try my best. And, you know, if you try your best, it's really all we can do. And and uh, hopefully I can pass on that idea of just kind of swing free and, and see what happens. It's just a, an extraordinary story, Joe. And let me ask, how old is Jackson? He just turned four. Wow. So you made this decision at 
in the middle of COVID, locked down by the sounds of it, working from home, and you adopted a child. So from never going to have kids to all of a sudden you're a dad for about a year or so now, I mean, there's so much to unpack here. How did the mindset shift? How did you go from don't really feel like we we want to have children to this opportunity to help Jackson presents and your wife and I make that, that you and your wife make that decision. I mean, how does that happen? Yeah. So, you know, one area it's a little, I get a little kind of cringy a little bit is when anyone kind of talks about, you know, you did this to, you know, really help Jackson. And I, the decision was extremely selfish in the fact that I saw him, my wife saw him and we wanted to be his parents. It's a wonderful clarification. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he didn't get to choose. I mean, we chose it, you know, frankly, if if it was another kid, I don't think we would have made the same decision. There's just something about him that we felt that, that like that kid, like we're going to be so fortunate to be his uh, parents. And I'm not entirely sure (laughs) what clicked, but I mean, it clicked. I mean, this like the color blue looked different. The, you know, (laughs) look in my wife's face looked different. And, and it just knew it was right. And you know, really all the largest decisions I've ever made in my life were made pretty short order. I'm a kind of a gut feeling type person. And I don't think if you take three weeks to make a decision or you take 30 minutes to make a decision, when you come to the conclusion and you feel like that's the right decision, then that's the right decision. And no need to string it out longer than, than it needs to be. And I mean, we decided in that moment, I, I remember I saw Jackson first and when they said that he was up for adoption or was going to be placed for adoption, I had uh, made the comment on, I knew I wanted to adopt Jackson, but I had made the comment, I'm sure a nice you know, family will adopt him and he'll find a nice home to kind of give my wife an out. And I turned around and she was crying and she's just like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, as soon as I saw her face, I, I knew that that she felt the same way I did. And it was kind of a no brainer. And it was just kind of, you know, funny how life just works out that way. And I think you can try to fight, fight the twists and turns, or you can just kind of laugh about it and enjoy it because, uh, I mean, a a plan is important and I'm, I'm kind of a planner, but you got to kind of be open for those, those opportunities. No, that's really special. And I have to ask, how has your mindset shifted since becoming a dad? Are there new priorities? Are there different priorities? Do you do you place importance on different things, or is it too soon? You know, are you figuring this out as you go? Yeah, still feeling it out how it goes. You know, frankly, I don't remember many of the things my dad ever said, but I remember watching him and watching the way he treated other people. And uh, you know, I kind of think about this also for my work. Just no one really cares what you have to say. You know, it's just. It's just your actions and it's your consistency. And you know, I could tell Jackson a thousand times, you know, dad always comes back. Dad always comes back because, you know, when I drop him off at daycare or things like that, not super thrilled about it all the time. It, but it doesn't really matter how many times I tell him. It's just I have to always come back. And that's the only way to clearly make it, it clear to him that that's, that's what happens. So it's a, uh, you know, I, I have a view of the, of the man I want to be and the father I want to be. And, and really, it's not going to happen overnight. It's just going to have to be told. The story will just have to be told through my actions over the next 60, 70 years. 
You mentioned earlier too that um, when you weren't planning to have kids, you were going to make the money, you were going to spend it all. Adios. What about now? Is that still the plan? You're going to make it, spend it. Adios. Uh, Jackson will find his own way. Or do you think that there might be a different strategy emerge over the years? Well, where we sit right now, plans still spend a lot of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, you absolutely you know, sh- should still enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've not seen really any successful families pass down wealth. Just in my own ecosystem, I've, I've really not seen it done well. I've only seen it done poorly, where it actually makes things worse. So part of my theory of spend almost all of it is, uh, at least I know I remove that <laughs> that negative off the table. And uh, I mean, you know the statistics. I mean, the chance of it going well is not the majority. So in my head right now, I mean, I'm still buying real estate and still kind of trying to think long term. I'm at the time we're recording this, I'm 34 years old. So a lot of my wealth preservation is for myself, you know, frankly, because I, I really know how expensive it is to be 70 years old and either you or your spouse is in poor health. So, you know, right now the plan is, you know, try to put as much money away and assets away and make decisions that 50 years from now, those assets could continue to, to generate for me when maybe I have dementia or my wife has dementia or, or we need the services. And I think, you know, if I could show Jackson how money works and explain to him how you go about owning assets and give him a leg up, you know, really that education is, is really the much more valuable than, than the dollars. You, look, you're absolutely right. And, and certainly the statistics are against everybody, which is partly why I, I started this podcast to explore some of the exceptions to that rule, some of the minorities who, who do get it right. But um, as we've learned, it takes an enormous amount of commitment and intentionality, I think, to make multi-generational work in a meaningful way. But um, financial capital can really can really impact people poorly if it's not managed well. But I think a lot of what you've talked about on the, in this conversation today is more on the human capital side of things in in caring for people as they age, but also, you know, setting up the next generation for with the right tools and education and understanding to live the life that they want to live, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, definitely. Joe, it's this has been so nice and and a real change of pace, I think, for from some of the other conversations we've had. It's time now for our final question, a question I ask all of the guests that come on the show. Imagine you're writing a letter to your children. What is one lesson or idea that you don't think many parents would mention, but you consider important to understand? Yeah, I think it's if, uh, if my son ends up listening to this podcast down the road or it's in a letter, you know, it would be, you know, that you are enough, your accomplishments. And, you know, really, that's not the definition of who you are. Your mom and I love you very much and continue to treat people how, how you want, uh, want to be treated. And if you go through this world uh, doing the right thing, even when it's hard, you know, I think it'll ultimately work out just fine for you. Fantastic. A great lesson too. Joe, thanks again for taking the time to join the show. I really appreciate all that you've shared. And to be honest, the, the things that you've made me think about, you've given lots of takeaways. Thanks again. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me on and uh, appreciate all the work you uh, put into the podcast and getting this information out here. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. 
To find more episodes of the Business of Family podcast, go to businessoffamily.net. You can also sign up for my email list at businessoffamily.net forward slash newsletter. After you sign up, you'll receive immediate access to all past issues and then one email per week. You can also follow me on Twitter using at Mike Boyd. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend or leave a quick review on iTunes, which will help more people discover the business of family. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.